A warning before this episode starts that it contains strong language and adult humour from the outset and is not suitable for kids. I never told you CFB today by my first ever comedian as a guest and that's Joe Caulfield. Joe, thanks for joining me. You're very welcome. I just hope I'm not, uh, not too, well, you know, you've because I've listened to who you've had and you've had very learned people on, so that worries me now. <laughs> first of all, before we talk comedy, mm. um, what's your love of football like? My love of football is annoying to some people, right? Because I came to football late. I didn't grow up with football. My dad never went to football. It wasn't a, it wasn't a thing, although it is a thing which we'll go into later on my mum's side of the family. So I didn't really watch it or anything. And the first time I got into the excitement of it, and I remember it really clearly, it was Italia 90, but it wasn't, wasn't Gaza crying. It was because I was working in a restaurant and the kitchen and waiting staff. It was, you know, completely multicultural. So everyone was supporting different teams. And a lot of the kitchen staff, uh, there was some from uh, Cameroon and Nigeria and Senegal and Algerians who were supporting France and then supported Cameroon when they went through to the quarterfinals, like everybody from Africa supported them and the excitement was incredible. And then there was Brazilians and they got knocked out, but then they continued to support Argentina. And there was Irish there, and Ireland was do, were doing well too. So it was just that sort of feeling, that excitement. And what, and that was the first time I really started watching games and, you know, going to the pub with other people and, uh, and feeling how it is, how exciting it can be when there's everybody around you and how important it was to the guys from the Cameroon and all of the ones in the kitchen from Africa that they were doing well was amazing and the pride and I you know I was totally supporting with them because my family background I've never really supported England because I'm like uh, my basically my my parents are from Northern Ireland my dad's family is from the south originally from the public so and I was born in Wales <laughs> so I, I find that I always like my my heart team weirdly would be Wales, even though that's not like a blood team. But I would go, well, like when they went, did well the other year, oh, my God, I was so happy. And then it would be uh, Northern Ireland and Ireland and then Scotland and then England. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but I, with, so that was when I first sort of got into it. And then I started sort of, if it was more like friends. I had friends who supported Arsenal. I lived in North London then. So that, and that was when, you know, Arsenal was starting to become really, really exciting and completely change their image. So that was the other thing, that they had been boring, boring Arsenal and this defensiveness and the George Graham and all of that. And then they, when they changed to this fabulously exciting team with beautiful players like Burkamp and Henri and that, that's when, you see, that's when, to, this is what annoys people, that's when to me... <laughs> I don't know how you can just keep supporting the same team because to me, 
the teams change, even how they play changes. The whole philosophy of a club can change in a way. So I kind of support football. I just really enjoy good football, the story of a team, you know, like Wolves at the moment. How exciting are they? You know, that's, that in a season, a whole a team can completely change their story. And that, you know, that is can never get dull, can it? I think that that's also part of it, that that really excites me all the time. And I suppose my excuse for the fact that I support lots of teams <laughs> and then I drop teams as well. Oh, you know, I'll go, oh, no, Everton, no interest. Although I'm slightly liking them now again that Carlo Ancelotti's there. But so I'll drop people as well. But also I don't, because I don't come from anywhere in terms of I didn't grow up, I grew up in the Air Force, like moving around. So that's my excuse in that I say, well, I wouldn't have a team. I wouldn't have a town that I come from. So that's my excuse why I'm allowed to just you know, chop and change and go with who's playing the best football. You know, I'm one of the, I'm not a glory hunter, but I am who's playing the best football hunter. Yeah. In terms of Scottish football, you've got a kind of unique story in the sense that you followed two big clubs who are rivals. (laughs) I didn't know you weren't allowed to do that. Um, So I support Hibs and Hearts. Um, I live in my garden. I can hear Hibs. Like I'm so close to Easter Road. So, and I absolutely love that sound. Like on an afternoon, if I would be in the garden and hear the cheers and the noise of that. And, uh, and I can go to Hibs. I have a friend who goes there. So I sometimes go there with him. And I, it's re- <laughs> the bit I love most, of course, is when they all sing Sunshine on Leaf. Yeah. Absolutely cry my eyes out. And you go, oh, my God, you would have a heart of stone not to be moved right now. But if they do badly, when I went um, to a derby and it was typical, Hibs were doing well and um, hearts are shit, but then hearts beat them. And the audience is like, everyone in the crowd is so annoyed. And and then I was like, oh, no, now they're not going to sing. They're all going to start leaving. And then they don't sing because they're pissed off. So they wouldn't sing. And so I was like, oh, that's the bloody best bit, the singing. Um, so I, but I also like, I've been to Hearts and I did, I actually did Hearts Player of the Year dinner, got booked to do that. Um, so I did kind of lots of jokes about, you know, living in Leith and all oh, that terrible shit uh, football club they've got. <laughs> no. um, but also one of the guys who was one of the sponsors for it he wanted to have some publicity shots. He had some sort of building company and he had a smart car and it was painted maroon and had a big Hearts logo on it. And he said, oh, we'll do some shots. We'll do them at Arthur's seat. We'll come down and pick you up. So, and I said, you know, I live in Leith, right? And they went, oh, that's all right. They didn't realize quite where I lived. So the guy went, Luckily, he said, I didn't go down Easter Road. So he's coming down all the way down Leith Walk in this heart smart car <laughs> and then comes down my street. And there are people, literally people just staring. And then we, we, I got in and I couldn't stop laughing. And then we got in and we go along uh, Duke Street where there's a really uh, rough pub, Duke's Head. And, uh, and we stopped on the corner there and the guys are out there smoking and the guy just went, oh, you've got some bollocks on you guys. <laughs> coming down here in that car right but it was it was a fun gig to do but also I like the ground there again because it's it's a lovely ground I think Tyne Castle 
Um, and I, uh, that's another weird thing. I really, I don't think it's weird, but I really like football stadiums. Um, and I think that's because it's still got a lot, it's still got a lot of the red brick, still got that old feel to it. And you're so close to the pitch and the sound is fantastic. And also it's that romanticism of football. There's some of the few clubs now that are still in the city. And when it's match day, you see everyone walking, you see the families walking and there's nothing lovely, you know, seeing, you know, mums and dads and their little kids with all the scarves on. And it's just a tradition, that tradition carrying on and on. And, and people, instead of, you know, places like Bolton, where the ground is like right outside the city now, it's still people just walking from their homes, coming out the tenements down into Tynecastle or down over to Easter Road. And I, I, mean, I think they've, they've kept that community feel about them. You definitely have. You're spot on. And mm. you, you talked about your love of football stadiums. I'm, I'm one of these people that love stadiums as well. What would you say some of your favourites are? It's a weird one, isn't it? I do really like them being in the centre. Uh, I really like in uh, Lisbon how you've got uh, both the stadiums are quite close to each other. And so you, like I was first time I noticed it coming from the airport and you go over a sort of a motorway bridge and the taxi driver, he was a Benfica fan and, and he was saying, oh, that's the stadium. And he said, and over there, we call it the toilet. And of course, <laughs> that was, and then they go to the other state and they've got, oh, they're so close to each other. Um, so that's kind of weird because you think of them that I always think of rival teams as being from different sides of the city, but they're, but they're so often not like that. Um, and they're both beautiful stadiums. And then went to um, Valencia and just happened to be that the hotel was right around the corner from the stadium. And that's a great stadium because there's something, again, it's right in the city. And you almost sort of don't see it. It just looks like a lot of walls go very high. And then you realise, oh, it's a stadium. And I went, I walked around that for ages. I was even excited. There were obviously some tickets going on sale for some kind of special game, you know, uh, like their sort of FA Cup game. And people were queuing. I was excited watching people queuing up to buy the tickets because of how excited they were to get these tickets. But that stadium, there's something about it, they say, and I've not been in it that it become because it's so high the walls are so high um so the top i suppose it, it doesn't it doesn't open out so it's really like a cauldron of noise because the noise really stays in and they say it's one of those ones that's hard to go to because it doesn't open right out you know you go to the camp new and that's that's the, the height of that is very impressive and the size of it and everything but the sound is up and and out you know but some of them are weird where they feel like they're closing in and I quite like the sun. Uh, I went to St. Pauli in Hamburg. And that's really nice because I like all that, you know, football doesn't have a gender and all that kind of we're anarchists and, but we're for peace and all that. I love the whole ethos behind St. Pauli. The football's not very good. But <laughs> that was like, uh, that had a really great feel to it again because it, it was that community. But it, was, it was not, wasn't just the community. It was like the whole we're supporting a way of life. And our way of life is like, you know, freedom for all. And we're kind of a bit punk and we're kind of a bit hippie as well. It's very unfootball-like in that way. In terms of you, you'd love a football, I've got to ask you this. Mm. Have you had anyone in your family at all that's ever played the game at any sort of level? My Uncle Eddie 
He's my mum's youngest brother, and there's quite a big age difference. So when my mum was already grown up, and she was a, like in her first job as a teacher, and my uncle Eddie was very good uh, at all sorts of sports, uh, but he was a goalkeeper, and she bought him, would buy him his football kit and stuff because he was good, and they couldn't, my grandparents didn't have much money, so they were, she would buy his football kit. And I remember seeing a picture as a kid of my uncle Eddie, uh, in he, used to, he played goalkeeper. He was goalkeeper for Northern Ireland, and there's a picture of him in the green kit, had in his, and then holding an old Soviet Union. So they played the old USSR, at holding what was it CCP? What was on the shirt? That whatever that was, the Russian USSR, and holding that shirt. And so he was very very good, but <laughs> he had very bad timing. And he always said he, he found out early, though, he said. So he played for he never went professional. He was studying to be a teacher and he was playing for Northern Ireland in goal. And he was played for a club. He played for he was at Coleraine University. So he played for the Coleraine team of the town. But there was another goalkeeper at the time as well, Pat Jennings. Wow. And he said <laughs> he very quickly went, right, this isn't going to work out for me. I think I'll finish my teacher training. And because he said Pat Jennings was so immediately just a million miles better than anybody they'd ever seen. And he said also that he had that aura, even when he was starting, of really great sports people, the, the work ethic and the, the confidence in the nicest possible way as well, that he went, oh, this is a different species. You know, this is why I'm a good amateur and he's going to be a great professional. That's an incredible story. You just Isn't think it? to yourself, yeah. you think yeah. to yourself, poor Eddie, in terms of he thinks he's doing well, he thinks That's he's a good it. player, and then Pat comes along, you know, you couldn't write it. Absolutely. And he was like, oh, what bad timing. He said, or oh, if I'd been a nastier person, I could have nobbled him in some way early on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Um, what I wanted to ask you about was. Um, Obviously, you, you, you're a female. Are you interested in, in women's football at all? Did you watch the Women's World Cup? I did watch the Women's World, uh, World Cup, and um, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I suppose I watched it like a lot of people for not the first time, but it was the first time. It, it, it's a it's a different game to me to watch it. It looks different. It's got a different pace, but kind of like a lot of sports. Once I start watching. I'll get into it. You know? yeah. So it was, it was just, it's just that anything you don't know about. And I do feel it looked to me, it looks different. Pace is different. Um, and it's like any sport you don't know. You just need to learn a bit. You need to watch a bit. You need to get some characters that you like, you know, like Meg Rapino, you know, to watch a, a character that you go, Oh, great. I've got something to latch onto here. There's a bit more emotion that I'm invested in. So, but I, I don't follow it the rest of the time. I follow what's happening with it in terms of, like, I listen to quite a lot of football podcasts. So if they're talking about the England team and managers, or if they're talking about the money going into women's football, how it's doing, and that I'm sort of interested, I'm interested in that, like, can it progress uh, the way it's doing in America, where it's very popular, more and more people are watching because all the girls in America play it at school. It was seen, soccer was seen like as a girl's sport there amongst 
you know, waspy types, obviously, like Latinos and Hispanic, they had always played football, but but only girls, really. So now that's, you know, more, they're more getting into the male game as well. So I'm interested in how it does, you know, but I've got to be honest and say, no, I don't, I don't watch it enough. But I'm sure by the time there's another tournament, then I'll be much more on board and invested because I'll, I'll know more of the players and it'll seem more of a thing. You know, but that similarly when people go to me, well, why don't you watch the lower leagues? You go, because I have a life. <laughs> <laughs> I can't watch everything, you know. But I, I sometimes like a, a good story of, of a, a club, you know. And, and, then, and then there are things like Leeds. I would love Leeds to come up. The sort of, uh, you know, they're such a big bruiser of a club. You know, they would be great in the Premier League, I think. All those fans, that would be fantastic. I'd love that. Absolutely. I think it would be like a throwback, especially with Ellen Road when it's packed. It's, oh, God. It's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And In then, terms... I, mean, that, that, I think when I was a kid, uh, that was Leeds' heyday. That was I think, Billy Bremner. I, I can remember that my sister liked Billy Bremner, which is such a weird thing, isn't it? Think, how could a young girl ever <laughs> have <laughs> Billy Bremner as a poster on their wall? But she did, and... And it's only then now, having seen the way he used to play and go, he was skillful, but he was, yes, he would cut the legs from under you, but he was also very skillful. So it's that, that era of, of team as well. You know, well, that's, that's it. That, that becomes interesting. I think uh, they're doing a lot of it on podcasts now because there's no football, isn't it? They're looking back at old matches. And that's really interesting to see how everything's changed. I think so. I think one of the things that's funny about... Um, how things have changed. I don't know if you find this, but I always find that I gravitate towards the sort of football era I grew up in. is, is my favourite era, and even though uh-huh. the, the modern game is brilliant, I still always kind of like. For me, it was the early early two thousands to the likes of Henri and and Faircamp oh. and, and and Ronaldo coming through. I always kind of yeah. Beckham. I always go back to that era, even though I love the game now. It's strange how you always gravitate back to what you kind of what your first love really. Well, you were you were very lucky because that was a great era, wasn't it? Fantastic oh, era, yeah, and really exciting and and characters and people who were changing the game. I think. I mean, to me, it sort of it more started with people like Cantona coming, who who just had a sort of intellectualness about them, you know, that made us kind of go, "Oh, football's different to how we thought. And footballers are different to how we thought." And and um, the sort of and the mind games and Alex Ferguson changing things hugely. I think, yeah, that was the great. I think all the nineties and all through the two thousands, fantastic time in football. In terms of your favourite ever players, who would you say if you had to give me five players who you would say oh. are your all time favourites? Right, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you like different people, different reasons. There are people that were beautiful. I think to watch. Um, and I would say from that era you're talking about, I, and I would say Dennis Burkamp and Thierry Henry. And then there are people that grew on me, like Paul Scholes, as, as someone who just like a head down, you think he's sort of a journeyman head down, but it's sort of the more he goes on, you realise the skill of him and the reliability of him. And then there are other people... I like like arrogant weirdos like Cantona, fantastic. <laughs> I love an arrogant weirdo. Just and you know the the collar up thing. Um, 
I like uh, Zinedine Zidane for that. He seems sort of mysterious somehow, but and the and I, and I always remember the headbutt, and uh, so he was very exciting. And then I'm trying to think, I was watching World Cups, and there's always ones that come into your head that you sort of then don't know because you don't see them the rest of the time. Um, I like I like a brave player as well. You know, ones who who don't who don't give up like. And ones that are good substitutes that come on as well. It, it does change because I have so different moods. And sometimes, like, I, I don't, I like, oh, people annoy me. Um, <laughs> where you go, oh, they're just not worth bringing up because if they're not in the mood, you know. But they're like, you know, it, it, people have got that Pogba thing where you go, yes, you're brilliant, um, but it's not consistent. And I want, I want, I've had enough of you now, you know. And then they might, and it's that. I find it very fun. I know I'm not answering your question at all by saying five people and I should have thought about it and I'll, I'll be annoyed afterwards going, oh, I should have said such and such a person. Um, and I like, oh, Kenny Dalgleish, I would say, uh, one of the greatest and one of the sort of something spiteful about the way he plays, which I liked as well. Sort of nippy, nippy <laughs> could be, I would imagine, quite annoying to play against. Because he always seems like a nice person, but I think he's not when he played, uh, which is good. Uh, that's a great thing. But I also like seeing, and I think this is interesting, it's interesting in terms of being a performer, is how players adapt as they get older, I always think is interesting. How they learn to play when they can't run as well, when they have to save their energies and how they, because some players don't learn that. And then others can go on. I mean, it's amazing to see Rooney. I wouldn't have thought he would be one of those players, but he is. That he's still going and he's changed the way he plays and he can still have absolute moments of brilliance. And they say that thing about Messi, that most of the time he's just walking around, seeing everything like a grid. You know, where are the spaces? What will I do? And he won't do anything for ages. And then a moment of brilliance. Like he's he's like a, a weird, like a almost like a maths genius, the way he sees angles of balls and stuff. And that's very interesting. And to see how long he can go on being that. And who was the one? Oh, I used to love Pirlo. Loved oh, him. Ball player. Oh, just so classy. And just strolling. Just strolling around. I mean, he could have literally had a fag and a glass of red wine. <laughs> and still done. Right, here's the moment where I'm going to do that amazing pass that will create a goal. You know, just picking the moments. And I think that's, and as a performer, I think that's the thing you think you have to perform age appropriately. You know, you can't sort of keep going on with that same energy because then it, it's fake, you know, and also you're wearing yourself out and it doesn't feel true. You've got to go with the, and I think it's interesting to watch players who do that and, and see them carrying on and on. We've talked a lot about football. I want to obviously, you're on the podcast. I want to talk to you about comedy. How did you get into comedy? Having nothing else to fall back on <laughs> is a great <laughs> thing. I mean, literally, I was uh, just drifting about, having a lovely time. I had no plan in life at all. So I'd come to London at 17. I was in, um, I was a rockabilly then, and that was my whole everything. I was in a rockabilly band, I played the drums. I sold, I had a market store and I sold rockabilly clothes. I would like find 50 stuff in like charity shops and that and then sort of do it up and sew it up and put buttons on and then sell it and stuff. So I did that and I worked in bars and things for money. So I did that for a long time. And then 
worked uh, more sort of waitressing, working in bars, had enough money to go out and have a good time. That seemed all you needed, really. Um, and then I was sort of, I kind of had a thing about sort of wanting to do something in comedy, but I didn't, I mean, I didn't go to comedy clubs. I liked comedy in that I'd watched, um, it was videos then, and I would watch, and I'd watch. I remember watching a Richard Pryor, a Steve Martin, and then I remember seeing Jack D, and he was the one that did it for me. When I saw him, I thought, oh, this looks doable, because I couldn't see, like, the skill of what he was doing. To me, it totally worked, because I just saw a man complaining about stuff, and it was funny. And I thought, well, I can complain about stuff. <laughs> I thought, that's, that's all he's doing. That's, it wasn't like, you know, I'd seen, like, people doing structured jokes and, like, the comedians on TV, which was the older guys in frilly shirts and that sort of thing. Um, I'd see, also seen people like Ben Elton, but that, again, was very structured jokes. I, that looked too difficult. I thought, how do you write a joke? I wouldn't know how to do that. But it was the conversationalness of Jack D that I liked that he seemed like just a mate, just a mate going on in a pub. That seemed seemed doable. And then, weirdly, it was a friend. Uh, I, I'd, done, um, I'd done a little bit of acting in, like, fringe theatre in London because my sister was a playwright. So I did a bit of that. Um, and then, But I was still waitressing and everything like that. And then a friend did an open spot at the comedy store, and I went down there, and the Jack D that I had seen on telly was on. And I remember the bill was Mark Lamar, who now no longer does comedy, but I knew him from the rockabilly circuit. So that was weird. I was like, oh, I didn't know he was a comedian. Um, I didn't, it was just at the old comedy store. I didn't really know what a comedy club was like. I'd never been to one. Um, Sean Mio, who's a comic still going, he was also on the bill. And an impressionist guy who doesn't do it anymore, Mike Haley. But I remember everybody so well. And there was just something about it. And I was like, well, I think this is the thing me and then there was a club the comedy cafe in east london every wednesday night they had an open mic night and you just had to phone up and they put your name on a list and then you'd go down so i did it went with a friend of mine was terrified had quite a few beers but i had written out a set i knew enough that you had to write a set so what i did and i thought that's not a bad way to start I did a few, I did anything that I'd said to friends that they'd laughed at. Like I had a story about seeing my dad's balls on the beach when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, like, cause he had these big shorts on and they were hanging out. And I thought they were like some sort of sea anemone thing. And I was, I was flicking pebbles to get them away from my dad. Right? No. So I thought, well, I'll tell that story. And then I told, said a couple of other things. And so it went well. And that was, I was hooked from then, those first laughs. And I think that's the problem is when your first gig, you're full of energy and excitement. So the audience like you, but then that goes and then you have some terrible gigs as you're learning how to do it. Because you have to learn in public. It's the only way, you know, you can't, it's like, like when I was learning to play drums, I could practice at home. You can't do that in comedy. Who knows if it's funny until you do it in front of people. So you have to go out there and ruin their night <laughs> by being bad. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, just let me be bad for five minutes and then I'll go, I promise. Yeah. In terms of, as you said, you have to practice in public. How difficult is it if you've spent time writing five or 10 minutes of a set and it doesn't go down too well because 
obviously we see you at the fringe on live at the Apollo and we see the stuff that's really the top of the range stuff that you're happy with but in those work in progress shows what can it be like? Well they're very different it's very different now because I know that's the process but when you're first starting of course it's all just terrifying and really upsetting you know like you'll you'll come off and you'll just go oh my god what am I thinking I can't do this and you'll be up and down and up and down. But now, having done it for so long, I know the work in progress. If a joke doesn't work, I don't think, oh, that's it. I'll go home and put my head in the oven. I can't do this. I'll just think, oh, that joke didn't work. That's weird. And the fact that you, you still can't guarantee that you know what's funny. You know, that's what's amazing. Like you can write at home and write at home and then do it on stage and go, oh, wow, that doesn't work at all. (laughs) I didn't know that. And then often things come out fully formed on stage. Like I think your brain is really heightened then. And this is, again, where I, to me, that's what I like reading like football books and about managers and players like, you know, people go, how did a player think to do that? Well, of course, they don't think it's instinctive. But it's only instinctive through a muscle memory of knowing positions and knowing. And that's the same with jokes. Like, you know how your brain knows how to put the ingredients together. I'm not thinking about it. The brain is doing all of that. And I've had jokes come out completely fully formed on stage out of my mouth. And I had no idea that they were coming out or what they were going to be. But at the same time, like I'm talking to you now, and I don't know what I'm going to say. So in that way... It's quite understandable because we don't have rehearsed conversations. So it is, I think, with people staring at you when you're on stage, your adrenaline is pumping. So your brain is working extra quickly. So that's why I always like working out new stuff on stage. Like I'll have an idea, like I had an idea recently about after I went into the Apple shop and they were saying, oh, we're Apple geniuses, you know, and they go, genius bar. And then I just, there was something funny about it. So I thought, well, I'll just talk about it on stage and, you know, and say, you know, and I was going, isn't that arrogant, you know, to get all with geniuses? I felt like saying to them, look, I don't want to don't want to be rude, but are you really? Because as far as I can see, you're all working in a fucking shop. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just sort of seeing how that would go. And it would only work if they also felt like that with me or they could see that, you know, because I was like, you don't go in Primark and go, oh, can I talk to a Primark genius, please? You know, it's like, oh, ask Donna, she knows everything about leggings. <laughs> And, that, and I and that's why I feel that that process, it's about, isn't it? It's the same thing of like why they always go, you know, the great players, they're the ones who are practicing. They're the ones, you know, like they always say that Ronaldo has made more of his talent because he works hard. So I think sometimes it's just the process of sitting down, making yourself think about stuff. Uh, and I might not come up with anything, but just that process means that once I, when I'm on stage, like, which is like when you're out on the pitch, then that shot comes to you, then that line comes to you because you've done the workout. Something I'm desperate to ask you, I've always wanted to ask Mm. comedians this is, is it frustrating that, say, for instance, a fan or whatever meets you, they always, they basically expect you to be on on the job 24-7 and they expect you to be really funny all of the time? Yeah, and comedians are always so disappointing. (laughs) Yeah, because, and it's funny, I've had that when, uh, like, someone will bring, like, a girlfriend or somebody backstage or a friend, and uh, and they walk in thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have the time of my life. There's four comedians here. How much fun is this room going to be? 
And it's us whinging, moaning, talking about terrible gigs we've had. We find it funny, but other people think that we are going to be the funny on stage. I mean, comedians are funny off stage, but it's quite a gallows humour as well, I think, that people don't expect. And also sometimes when you come off stage, I know this sounds really wanky, but you're a bit tired. (laughs) You're a bit tired from talking to people in terms of you just talk to a whole load of people and then someone will come up to you. And I'm always nice, but I also know I need to get away from you quite quickly because you're going to be disappointed. You're going to go, oh, we talked to her. um, And then we talked to her afterwards. And, you know, she's really quite dull. (laughs) (laughs) because it's that weird thing where I just go I just want to have a glass of wine and not have to think too much now and it's sometimes you do connect with people backstage you know after the show and you can click and have a drink and that's lovely but other times they want to know too much or they want to talk about comedy they want to go who's your favorite comedian you go I really one comics don't like being asked that because they want you to go well surely I'm the favorite comedian um but but also you kind of don't really want to talk you just want to talk about other things you know talk about anything that you know talk about them people don't often think you're interested like I did a dinner like where you get paid corporate dinner and it was auditors and I said to the guy oh tell me about it and he was going oh we're really boring you don't have to talk about auditing and I'm like look I just watched all of the Ozarks auditors are really interesting it's all and he's like what's Ozarks I'm like it's all about money laundering tell me about money laundering and then he told me all about money laundering. And I'd like to see this is really interesting to me. So people don't realize that we're interested in the world because that's where we get our stuff from, you know. And we think we're not that interesting in terms of, you know, I'd much rather know about what your job is and talk to me about that. But, yeah, I think, I don't know if they think we're going to be, Miss, you know, Mrs. Funny Pants and more like a clown. Some comics are more clownish and they'd be like that. But, you know, a lot of us, you know, like my default setting is to be a bit grumpy, you know, a bit like, oh, fuck that. Like, you know, people go, oh, there's a brilliant party across the road. I'm like, oh, is it? How good is it? You know, whereas other people are like, oh, we thought you'd be fun and want to run along. But if I did go to the party, I would have fun. But my I, my my thing is, is, I think a lot of comments is to step back a bit because we're watching, you know, we're observing and noting things we're creepy <laughs> like that <laughs> we're creepy people yeah something that as well that really interests me is you've appeared on multiple panel shows I, I said this to you before when before we arranged this interview that growing up you were one of the voices on mock the week who when I think back to growing up I, I just remember a lot there was there was <laughs> you there was Dara there was Russell Frankie Andy Parsons mm. Hugh Dennis um Gina Yashiri was on quite a lot as well See, when you're in a panel show environment, what's that like? Because I imagine it's quite competitive because you've got six comedians and dad as the host all wanting to get material out there. Well, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. That was the thing about Mock the Week that was different to the others. Um, you know, if you think about how I got news for you, um, there's Paul Merton, but he's, he's older and not so desperate for the stage time, the TV time. Um, And there might not be another comic. You might be the only comic. So there's lots of space. But Mock the Week, one, we were all new. Most of us were new to television um, and desperate, (laughs) desperate to get our jokes. So so it was really competitive. Um, Not not so much that we felt competitive with each other, but we're competitive for that time. 
because you would know, right, there's only 20 minutes to this show. So the four regulars are going to have a certain amount of time. As a guest, you've got possibly a minute and a half that you'll get on screen. So you've got to get your jokes out. And as it's topical, often, like Frankie would be very quick to get his jokes out. And you'd go, oh, I had a similar joke to Frankie. So on that same subject. And now he's got it out and I don't have another joke on that subject. So now I've not got a joke. You know, so it was that you were trying to have as much material as you could as possible. But then it would, could turn out, you go, oh, I didn't get anything on that. Or you missed your moment. You know, they're going, if it was now, they're going, we're talking about coronavirus. We're talking about coronavirus. Now we've moved on and we're talking about uh, the Olympics. And you go, oh, no, they've moved on and I didn't get my coronavirus joke. So it was all a bit frantic. It was. And it's the point when Andy Parsons, the bit where you walk up to the microphone. And I used to like that bit because I knew once I got the mic, I couldn't be interrupted. You know, once I got there, that was my moment and I'd be able to tell my joke. Whereas on the panel, you didn't know someone can talk over you, someone can jump in. But then Andy Parsons, he said, and I said, but Frankie always seems to get there. And he went, yeah, Frankie's closer. And I went, that can't make a difference. He goes, I've measured it. He's four inches closer. It's like, God. <laughs> so his walk was four inches less than the other teams, you know. But it was quite, it was quite cutthroat, yeah. I think they, rela- they sort of relaxed it more. They sort of, because people were saying, this is too cutthroat to go on. It's not enjoyable. So I think the sort of producers had to kind of go, right, everyone just calm down. But it's hard because we're all very overexcited, you know. And like you say, there's six comics and Dara. And Dara loves to chat. You know? So it's very, it's difficult just to find that time to get in. In terms of the big personalities on that show, like, Russell Howard obviously has been on incredible things, Frankie mm. as we all know what were they like to work with as characters because obviously we all see them from the TV persona and the, the comedy persona Yeah, I mean uh, Frankie I would say I, I don't know very well in that he, you know, he's not <laughs> he's very, he's quite like he seems on TV, he's not, you know whereas Russell is very, is warm and friendly and and Frankie is just kind of getting on with it not particularly you know, chatty or anything. Andy Parsons, I'd known for a long time, so I know I knew him. So that was that was different, you know. But a lot of it, if you if you haven't come across each other on the circuit, on that day you're filming it, you're just all really concentrating. Yeah. You know, so you're not having that really. You're in different dressing room. You're not having that much to do with each other until you're actually on the show, and then sometimes having a drink afterwards. You know, can be fun. But just it's such a prolific joke writer and rem- and remembers jokes frankie i think that was the thing he was just like a machine gun really really impressive where you'd go wow how do you how do you keep coming up with gag 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 fantastic in terms of yourself joe you've written jokes and you've written pieces for several other people in other tv shows what's that like well i was really lucky um and that's why often this way this thing goes is I knew Graham Norton in that we'd done a gig together out of London, uh, driving all the way to Chester, drove there, drove back. And I'm a slow driver. So that was a long day together. And then I dropped him off. So we kind of bonded on that trip. He'd only just started doing stand-up. And then sort of quite quickly, he got um, here a pilot, a TV pilot. And he said, oh, I don't want a warm-up artist. 
that's the one that you know that goes in and goes everybody start clapping and laughing and makes the audience have a bit of a laugh and that because at that time they were all men and they were mostly that old school old-fashioned comics and he said I don't want that it's a completely different energy from from what I do and then the producer I had done warm-up for um Moena Banks sketch show it was the only one I'd ever done warm-up for and he's the producer said oh we had a woman Joe Caulfield so Graham was like oh I know Joe have Joe so I did the warm-up for the pilot and the first series and then they had trouble finding writers for Graham because Graham was like (laughs) If it's hard for people to remember now, but when Graham first did his TV show, he was the first really openly gay man. Not like it used to be people were gay, but it was a, like a pretend. People didn't think they were really gay. It was like a showbiz gay. They were just a bit camp. But Graham was like, no, I have sex with men. This isn't just for my act. I'm actually gay. I have boyfriends. And so he said all the jokes were a little bit too old-fashionedly. Oh, hello, missus, you know. And then they said, it was the producer again, said, well, why don't we give Joe a try? Because she knows the show. Um, and also, I kind of would know Graham's point of view about what celebrities he would like. Some of the male writers were going, we don't even know who these people are. And I was like, well, get with it. And that was the time, <laughs> Catherine Zeta-Jones, it was all like, all you need to know, she's married to a very old man. And when, when he comes, it's dust. You know, it was always these same jokes that we, you could rewrite kind of in a way. But it was knowing his point of view and knowing how he would talk about stuff. Um, and, and that was very interesting. And Graham would always go through the news and, and, and he would say funny things off the cuff and then we would write them down and then we would go away and do jokes. And it was just a really good way to, to learn joke writing, you know. And, and also it was good money and it paid for me to then be able to go, right, I'm going to do an Edinburgh Festival show. I don't have to just do this circuit of what was Jongler's gigs then, where that was where good money was. But they were also quite, wasn't that they were brutal? They were a bit, it was a bit, you didn't have to do this, but there was a lot of act developed, this sort of lowest common denominator kind of hacky act. Not all the acts who did Jongler's did that, and you didn't have to do that act, but a lot thought they did. And I was like, I don't want to be that kind of comic. So in that way, I think I was lucky in that I, my, I was, I was able to find my voice a bit longer, you know, do nicer clubs and just go right. Just what is me, and and find that out. So it was it was. So, I mean, and we went to New York. We went there for three months. Graham did a show from there, and so we got to live in New York and do comedy clubs and gigs out there, which was amazing. It's very different because the audience is sober. <laughs> that was so weird to me, where they go and it's the two drink minimum, and we're going. Well, who's not going to have two drinks? That's insane. Of course you're going to have two drinks, but they go, they have that weird policy in clubs, whereas British people are just constantly drunk, so they're in the mood for a laugh, <laughs> you know, much easier in that way. And they don't really heckle in America, and they clap at the end of jokes like it's a song, which is really weird. It just takes up too much time. You know, I, I mean, it's flattering, but when you realise, oh, they clap everybody's jokes, then you go, oh, it doesn't mean anything. Stop doing it. <laughs> Let's get more jokes out. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Um, in terms of have I, have I Got News for You, that show has been mm. on for, for forever, really. That's what it seems. Yeah. It's a great show. I really enjoy it. But what's it like when you're on there with, with Ian and, and and Paul? Because I know, obviously, the host changes quite a lot. Yeah. But they, I mean, I would absolutely say they are absolute gentlemen. I think they're both, you know, they're both secu- so secure that um, they don't mind, you know, somebody else trying a little hard. 
um, to get their stuff on and be funny. And it's just panel shows like anything. And you sort of it's, it's learning. How do I get my stuff in? What's what suits the show? And I really, really I mean, I don't do it very often, but I really, really enjoy it because you, there is time. There's time to develop. And uh, Paul, particularly every time I've done it, I sat with Paul and he is really good because he improvises so much. He likes to get going on a riff. So there's nothing to me more happy than sitting there going, oh, I've just said a funny thing. And now Paul is adding to my funny thing. He's riffing on the thing I said. And now I'm going to riff back with him. And that just felt like that's like when, you know, younger you is going, look at me riffing with Paul Merton. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of um, Ian, what's Ian Hislop like? Because obviously Private Eye and, and, and things like that. But what's he like as a, as a sort of character? I really like Ian, but I just... I just always wonder what he's really like off screen. He is probably the nicest person in the world. Uh, genuinely, um, I really admire what he does with Private Eye. I really admire his principles and that he really holds people to account of whatever party they're in, you know. Um, and so I'm a fan of Private Eye. Weirdly, I never find Private Eye that funny. What I like is all the investigation you know, that they, they do in that magazine. But Ian is, is funny, is charming, loves a drink afterwards. That's really nice. I love people like that. You know, because I thought I'd have done the show so often, he'd just like get in his fancy car and off he goes. But no, he hangs around, as does his wife, and his grown-up son was there last time I did it. All, you know, quaffing the red wine, just enjoying people's company, having a laugh. Great. Like you could say, this is a happy man. This is a man who's happy with his life. Um, because he's not a comedian, I think he's under much less pressure on that show. So if he is, he's still like the queen. If he says something funny, that's a bonus because he's there to be the, the kind of the righteous one, isn't he? And to know stuff about politics. But he also is uh, very funny. But he also knows everything and knows everybody's everybody's dirty secrets and can hold them up if they set. And then he'll go for the politician particularly. He'll go, but didn't you say such and such? And didn't you vote against such and such? You know, and you go, aha, Ian's got you. Yeah. In terms of yourself, I'm always interested to, to know about live shows. You've been on live at the Apollo. You've been at the Fringe multiple times. You've had tours throughout the country as well. What's it like preparing for a show and then delivering it when it's your standalone show? It's different because you know they've come to see you. So you know to an extent that they know what you're about. Um, so, and also you sort of structure differently. Like the things I'll do in 20 minutes, you can't do 20 minutes and 20 minutes and 20 minutes and 20 minutes and 20 minutes for an hour and a half. That's, it's two one note. So it's, what I enjoy is then you've got to build some things in. So often I'll have a, a story. I've had a story one time. One time I, I wrote a, a porn film, but it was mainly to like, and it's full of callbacks for the show. Um, and what it was more like what I thought an actual porn movie would be in reality. Um, about it's about threesomes that we were in a hotel basically with my husband and there was there was a porn channel and I was like oh it's always threesomes it's always two women and a man like it's never the other way and men would always pick that and my husband was going well you would pick that and I was going but I don't think it's how you would think it would be because I think if if it's two women uh, if you said oh let's do two women I would immediately go oh that's nice I'll have someone to chat to 
<laughs> and I think that we would just start talking and also criticizing you. And also, I would be interested in another woman's opinion. So I'd be going, well, you'd be doing your business. And I'd be going, telling her, well, what do you think of that? Yes, that's what I thought. It's like being probed by an alien. So, <laughs> but I was able to bring callbacks into the film from things that happened during the show. So you've got to structure things much more uh, and have things for people to hang on to more. And they want to know. And I, I suppose because I think this, I, I like to know somebody more by the end of the show. And I remember going to see, and he's an amazing joke writer, Stephen Wright, uh, an American. And I went to see him years, and this is before I did comedy, and went to see him in a big theatre in London. And I thought, yeah, the jokes are amazing. The first joke was amazing. The last joke was amazing. But we didn't go anywhere. There was no journey. There was no real you. I don't know you any better. And I like to, by the end, oh, I like to feel that I know the person you know, that I could stop them and have a drink with them. And that's why I think it's nice if people after a show do kind of go, oh, Joe, you know, because I think, oh, good. I made you, and I don't, think, I don't mean this horribly, I've made you think that we're friends. That's what I want, because that's what I liked when I first saw Jack D. He made me feel he was my mate and that we could just have a chat because he's like me. And so that's the feeling that you want on stage. It's like you being with your mates when you're at your funniest, you know, and you're just like riffing and things are coming, you know, it's, it's to capture that, but you obviously you have to be much more structured about it when you're doing a touring show. The only thing about, I mean, I love Edinburgh to do Edinburgh because that's an hour, great time. Um, and also, cause I live here, I go home, but also there's comics everywhere. It's really sociable. It's great on tour. I tour on my own for economic reasons, I don't do big enough venues that I would pay for support. Um, so I tour around on my own. And so sometimes, like when I get to the theatre, like they're always like, oh, she's really friendly and chatty because I haven't spoken to anyone <laughs> all day. You know, so they're like the sound man, I go, oh my God, well, she's shut up because I'm just really happy to see people. But that's actually quite a good way to go on stage because all that energy... I cannot wait to talk to that audience. And that's a good energy to have when you're doing a tour show where you've got to do 45 minutes and a break and 45 minutes. And also I've had the day where I can concentrate. I can go to their town early and have lunch somewhere, walk around, have some stuff to say about it, really make that show about their town and them. So it's not, I haven't just turned up and this is the same show I'm going to do in the next town. It's the same show with, you know, 15 minutes that is about them as well. So in a way, really, it, the fact that you are just touring about on your own makes you, and you're really focused on just doing a show that night. It does make the shows better. It does. See, in terms of comedy now, I don't want you to give away the, the secrets of comedy, if you will, but something I've always thought with comedy I love stand-up I'm very honest about that I absolutely love stand-up love going to the stand in, in Glasgow um, I just absolutely love the fringe as well in terms of going to see different comics what I wanted to to ask you about was see say for instance Joe you're doing a tour and it's 32 dates see towards the end of the tour again I'm not trying to take the, the, the secret and the glamour away from it see because you are it's roughly the same show See, towards the end, does your enthusiasm at all wane? Hmm. 
Yes, sometimes, you've got to be honest, sometimes it's like, uh, sometimes it's a bit like having to do your homework. Um, uh, but once you start, it's okay. Um, then you go, oh, no, uh, I'm enjoying it again now. And that's why I always like a bit, uh, of, certainly on a tour show and an Edinburgh show, a bit of interaction with the audience, because that is always going to be different. So that perks me up. And then sometimes in, at the Edinburgh Festival, to stop myself going mad because you're doing the same thing, and somehow it's more intense in Edinburgh, so it's because you're doing it in the same room every night. And you can sort of go, I, have I said this before? I don't know what's going on. So sometimes I have changed the order around just to keep myself on my toes. I'll go, right, why don't you do that then? And then turn that around and it'll, it'll force you to think so that you, because the worst thing in the world is if you go on autopilot. If your brain starts to go off and you're just saying words, then that, that's terrible. And, then, and the audience can feel it and you go, oh, it just felt it was flatter. So it's just always remembering that you're actually being in the moment, that thing of being in the moment, making sure you're switched on. And again, it's weird, that thing, because again, that's to me, that's like uh, football where if you're not concentrated, if you're not, so you miss that pass, you miss that, you don't see that, you don't think of that because you're not right there. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it is that thing, keeping yourself right there. And then there's some, like we you were saying, the Glasgow Stand, like the Glasgow Stand is one of those clubs that's just such a joy to play. And people uh, will... Uh, are frightened of it sometimes, you know, especially like people with my accent will go, oh, my God, you know, playing in Glasgow. Oh, dear. And uh, and then you go, yeah, but if they like you, they really like you. They'll test you. But then you're so rewarded. Like because I've, I, I'm like I'm married to a Scott and, you know, my family being Irish and that I feel an affinity uh, and I like I do a range of Celtic joke and I can feel the tension in the room going, who the fuck is she with that accent <laughs> to start a Celtic Rangers joke, right? And, uh, and I do it and I say, you know, I'd never been to one before Old Firm Derby at Ibrox and not, my family's Irish Catholic, my husband's you know, Scottish Protestant family. So obviously I knew like there's going to be some sort of sectarian nonsense. I was about, oh my God, it's so much worse than I thought. It was like, you effing fenian this, you effing fenian that. Like in the end, I was just like, okay, stop the car. I am getting out. You are going to this game on your own. <laughs> and they were like so tense going, where is she going with this? And then when they, as soon as they know, when they know, you know, then, ah, oh, you're so rewarded, you know, in cheering and just like, no, we're right on board with her. And if you take the piss out of people, you cannot say enough, <laughs> enough bad things to people in Glasgow. Once they like you, oh, you can insult them as much as you like and they love it. But if they don't, <laughs> I really wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of at the moment, I meant to say as well, the reason I asked you the question about um, the sort of tour and towards the end, mm. because I've always wondered this with bands as well. I always think, you think of the biggest bands in the world, even years yeah. ago, the Queen or the Stones, um, mm. the Beatles, you think, see if they're doing like 100 tours, 100 tour dates, I always wonder when it gets to say tour date 86, how can you still have that same enthusiasm 
to sing the same song again and again. That's why I, I was curious. Yeah, but isn't that, and I think that's a very good question because I think it's something that's underrated is that ability to be able to do that. You know, that's part Absolutely. of the skill. And isn't that what they always say, you know, about the same about flair players? They always go, oh, what are they like, you know, Wednesday night, rainy night in Stoke? It's can you keep doing it? And uh, my husband, actually, he went to see the Stones when they were at Murrayfield last year. And he went, they're nearly dead. And they were amazing. And he said, because he's a big football fan, and he said it was very like watching older players. They had... They had, you know, they have backing singers and they have other musicians. There's a lot of, of stuff on screens so that they don't have to move <laughs> that much. But they make you feel that they're totally loving it, that they're right in there. Because they're, they're, and then you go, God, hats off to you. That is, you know, that what people say, old pros, and sometimes people say that as something derogatory. But it's not because you have to. You're so right. You have to be able to churn it out but nobody knows you're churning it out. Absolutely. It's the, I can't remember um, which comedian it was that said it, but I always remember. I can't, I'm trying to think who it was. I can't remember. But somebody had said that whenever you do a show, it's important to make your audience feel it's the first time you've ever delivered that show. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because I always think that's the... That's, for me, that's why I love stand-up. Um, because... When you watch comedians like yourself, one of my favourites is Mickey Flanagan, Billy oh, Conley, yeah. obviously being from Scotland, Frankie, mm. um, Andy Parsons, who you mentioned earlier. Lots of really good comedians out there. As I say, I just love my comedy. And the one thing I love is when you go and see a comedian or you watch their DVD or whatever it is you're watching, I love it when you get, as you mentioned about that whole friendship thing, that like when I watch mm. Mickey Flanagan, as you say, it's that kind of sad thing as a viewer. Or when you're watching them live, you leave going, you feel as if you know them. You feel like you personally know them. And I think that's quite strange, but it's also quite amazing. Yeah, it is. And, and I think Frankie, uh, uh, Mickey is like that. And he always was like that. You know, he was one of those, like, nobody, I mean, he was quite a bit older when he got famous. But nobody was surprised because everyone went, but Mickey was always great. Always great in clubs, always that cheeky chappy. You know, uh, even like having a drink with him after he would, you know, be he's very gregarious in that way and, and talking to people and just naturally. And John Bishop is like this as well. They're people who are very, which is sort of unusual for comics, naturally very comfortable in themselves, actually. You know, and he, so he is a great guy to have a drink with. Genuinely is is like that. Something I'm interested to talk to you about is obviously the current situation. I don't want to watching news it's depressing and bleak enough as it is so mm. I don't want to turn this into an analysis yeah. <laughs> but what I wanted to, to ask obviously we see because there's no gigs at the moment the fringe has been cancelled what's that like as a comedian because if you've prepared lots of material or you're desperate to go and it's taken away from you how do you handle that? I thought <laughs> so when it happened like I, I weirdly I was doing a benefit gig in Leeds and it was me Hal Cruttenden Matt Reed Brennan Reese, and we were talking and I said uh, oh I think I think some gigs are going to be cancelled and we were talking going yeah maybe the gigs will be cancelled and then it was literally the next day I got a call from my agent and she went I think this is going to be the first of many that it was a corporate job. She goes, that's cancelled. And I think they're, they're all going to cancel in March and April. And then it was just that realisation how long this might go on. 
And then when clubs closing and you're like, oh, right. And then I did the live, the first live show they did from the stand where they said, oh, we're going to stream it. But we actually went into the stand because this was before the lockdown. So it was me and Mark Nelson and Gareth War, Vladimir McTavish and Phil Jupitus. And then the only people in there were Tommy Shepard, who owns it, the producer and two of the crew filming and sound and the barman. And that was the only people there. But it was enough because we were on stage and they laughed at our jokes. So it felt like a gig. It was great. And then the next, that was Monday, that was when they said there's lockdown. You can't have people at all. And then that was like, suddenly we all went, oh, my God, I better learn how to film things on iPhone. And <laughs> that was so weird that suddenly everybody's like filming things on iPhone. I, this week, I'm doing a thing. It'll go out tomorrow night, uh, Susan Kalman's show on BBC Scotland, uh, Social Distancing with Susan Kalman. Now, I'm doing an insert because they can't film me doing stand-up. They can't even send a cameraman to my house because that's against the quarantine rules. So I've had to film it all myself. And then the director has sent me emails going, can I have a, a, I need a cutaway shot. Can you do a cutaway shot? Just film like a lamp or a plant or something in your house. And I need that shot, but can you zoom here? And I, I mean, that's like a crash course in like, oh my God, I know what I'm doing to film it. And, and it's finding new ways because it's so awful not to have an audience. Like stand up, it's really hard to make it look good without an audience so it's finding I mean I think we'll get there but I've seen a lot of bad stuff online because we're still thinking we can just stand against a wall and do our stuff not without an audience you can't mm. it's just not enough so it, I think we're still learning and I think it'll be interesting we're learning how do we do this without the interaction from an audience to to breathe the life into it because otherwise it can be just be so cheesy and, and deadly and and also even the way you say stuff like on stage, I'm quite, not deadpan, but I'm quite dismissive, you know, quite like fuck you to the audience. But if I do that without the audience, I'm just, they, I just seem like a really mean, unfriendly woman. <laughs> They're just like, God, she's, she could possibly be funny because she's saying everything so mean. But the audience know that I'm joking with them. But when they're not there, you have to give a different, a different signal to them somehow. So it is interesting in that, in that way. And, uh, and it's funny how busy I am, weirdly, because I thought, I thought, oh, great, I'll lie around all summer having great thoughts. I'll write an amazing novel, right? But it's not, in this, instead you're going, oh, I really want to find ways to be funny. Like I've done a lot of social media because that's just something that I can do is some way of connecting with people. And also it seems like my job, you know, if people like to, you know, get in touch with me on Twitter and go, Oh, that really made me laugh. That's great. Cheer me up at work. You know, they go, that is what I should be doing. That's the only thing I can do to help. So I'll try. I'm not, that sound, makes me sound like I'm trying to be a martyr. I'm just saying, I thought, well, at least that feels a bit like you've done your day's work if you've done, you know, which isn't a day's work at all, doing some things on social media. But it's just, it's, you're finding your way, going, well, how do I, how do I do? I mean, weirdly, I've enjoyed it in that social distancing kind of suits me. <laughs> in that I, I kind of go, you just see the people you want to see. Like I've, I am all over Skype wine evenings. How great is that? Sit in my kitchen, get pissed, 
talk to my friends on Skype, and then I don't have to go anywhere. My bed is upstairs, just perfect. There's no like, oh, then we've got to travel, and then we'll be out too late, we'll have to get a taxi. It's just like, no, now I'm going to bed. I've had loads of wine, we had a laugh, and I haven't even had to dress up. Great. So, and, and though sometimes then you go, oh, I feel like dressing up. So I think that's a good thing to do as well. Put on your nicest clothes and just stay in the house too, if you want to do that. So I'm finding it quite interesting and I'm, I'm not bored. I don't understand people who are bored. There's, I mean, how much do we have at our fingertips in terms of entertainment and also in ways of talking to each other? Absolutely. You know, so now that we do a family one every Tuesday, my niece organizes it and my mother-in-law who's 90, she's on the WhatsApp <laughs> with her iPad. You know, it's amazing, isn't it? It's great. She's doing a, she's going to do a family quiz this week, which will be a fucking nightmare. But, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. So in a weird way, uh, I don't, I, I'm not bored and I just, I'm, I'm not, I would like it to be over. That would be great. But I just, you know, it's more like I'd, I wouldn't be a person to moan because uh, I'm not working in a hospital, you know, and I'm not ill. And there's, you know, there are people who are having a terrible time. And in one way, I'm going, I'm sort of having a really nice, busy holiday. <laughs> That's a good yeah. method for it, actually. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not earning any money, but luckily, luckily, I think uh, because <laughs> I've always had a fear of starving to death in a ditch with no money, I'm very, I'm quite careful. And I'm also I'm married, married to an Abedonian. So we've <laughs> saved some money. <laughs> <laughs> you know so way, yeah so i think in that way i thought well we can we can you know that'll be okay i'm not i'm not worried in that way because i think that can be quite debilitating for people as well to worry about money so you know and also isn't it making you go oh i'm not spending anything apart from my weekly wine bill obviously food that's it that's all you're spending money on that's that's, that's spot on yeah. um, the last question i've got for you joe i've really enjoyed this is linked to comedy as well um, we've talked about football, we've talked about stand-up, panel shows, the lot. What advice would you give to anyone considering giving comedy a go, maybe an open mic slot or what, what have you? It's terrible because uh, I think people want you to give them some sort of secret and the only secret is doing it. You have to do it. You have to get on stage. I would say record yourself. Just put your phone in your pocket and record yourself because then you hear the audience reaction. So then you hear what it is they, because sometimes it's not what you think you are. It's what they, they tell you. No, they like, when I realize people like it, if I'm mean and bitchy to them, go, oh, that's, go with that. That's who I am. That's what they're relating to. So I think record it, do it, get on stage, watch other people as well, and sort of try, it's a difficult balance. You've got to try to be honest with yourself and go, right, I'm shit. Um, but at the same time, have enough confidence to get up and do it again. And I would always say to people, being terrified and feeling sick doesn't mean you're not going to be good at comedy. I've been backstage with uh, Lee Evans when he's trying out new stuff in a comedy club. The man is sweating. He's shaking. He goes off to the loo and is literally sick, comes back, goes on stage and is amazing. So it's not that people are natural to it in terms of they don't have nerves. So just don't think of nerves are always part of it. Just get, get used to them. Just get used to them and ignore them. And they'll, they're there. That's not it. It's more 
just having the and you need to love it you need to want to keep getting up on stage and improving and working on your jokes that's the only thing brilliant joe it's been a pleasure and i hope to see you back on stage very soon oh i hope so thank you very much i've really enjoyed it give me something to do for the day brilliant so we'll dive down to the ocean and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave and our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make her home in a deep sea cave And her shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song